Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone and welcome to another Friday Shining Lights episode of the podcast. My guest today is a runner and climate activist who, in 2019, began an epic journey running self-supported from their home in the Lake District right the way across Europe. The purpose of what they have termed the New Story Run was to use the challenge to contribute towards changing the way we talk and think about the climate crisis. By meeting people on the way who are working on climate crisis-related issues and telling their experience from their individual perspective, They hope to spread new stories regarding how we can work together towards a better future. I'm eager to delve further into the motivation and important messages behind this challenge and to catch up with them now that they are back home and channeling their energy in new directions. So I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing. Hi, um, I'm Rosie Watson and uh, yeah, I was doing this big run and um, excited to chat about it on the Running on Joy podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Great for you to be here. So, Rosie, um, just like we'll obviously talk about the challenge as well. Um, but just to kind of wind it back, um, what was your relationship with movement and the outdoors and childhood like for you? Mm. Um, yeah, interesting question because I grew up in a really like outdoorsy family. Um, and in the Lake District, I grew up at the bottom of Ennerdale Valley, which is the most remote place of the Lake District. There's not a road down there. There's just a track which you have to have a permit to go down because my dad was the warden at an environmental centre down there. So we just lived down at the bottom of the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of freedom in terms of just running around um, in you know, the trees and the woods and stuff um, and just playing outside all the time. And then, but then when I was, we moved away from there when I was about nine um, to a town. But when I was a teenager, uh, I wasn't, I did, I did some running and stuff, but I wasn't that bothered about, I don't know, the outdoors and nature and the environment or anything. And I actually wanted to be a fashion designer and was like a little bit convinced that I was adopted because I was like, all my outdoorsy family, like, I'm not like one of them. And (laughs) yeah, like all our holidays would be in Scotland, like doing outdoor stuff and staying in this van. And like all my friends would be in Portugal sunbathing or whatever. And I was just so jealous and (laughs) like at one point refused to ever go back to Scotland and stuff like that. 
Um, and then kind of did full circle and now I absolutely love Scotland and all of the outdoor stuff and got into environmental, well, I guess learning more about the world and caring more about it. So I was about to yeah, say you've like a... come full circle because you've just got back from Scotland and now live in the Lake District. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the things you'd never do. <laughs> <laughs> so then when did you start to kind of get into get into running? Uh, I think, well, I, I was into running quite young, but when I was um, about 12 or something, I got into orienteering mm-hmm. um, and did that really competitively all through my teens. I think because I don't do it anymore, but I think it was a really good like social thing to do because it's such a small sport. Um, I ended up getting to know people from all over the country in my age group and we'd go on like week-long tours together in the summer and all this stuff um and then once I'd kind of got older and you you kind of have to join the like senior team so it's not fun Mm -hmm. and then I kind of realized that I prefer to just go running without having to think about anything else and like yeah and then I got into fell running and stuff because obviously the Lake District's a really good place for that how yeah. was that being a being a young woman in the kind of fell running community? Um, I think I'm not sure because I'd say I only got into it just as I was um, going to uni. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually do much training or anything with the local clubs. So I'm not really sure what it been, would have been like. I think they're all really friendly and stuff, mm-hmm. but it is still, yeah, I, I would say it's an extremely friendly community but it is quite male dominated in terms of managing of the clubs and the races mm. and I've, I've found as a kind of older young woman <laughs> I guess <laughs> that there's so some like there's quite a lot of like accidental sexism stuff which people aren't really aware of but it's never from a bad place but yeah I'm not sure what it would have been like growing up with the clubs and stuff but but you yeah. were just sort of doing it off your off your own back and going and throwing yourself up and down yeah. the fells. <laughs> yeah, I, I got into it, but then I was mostly, all my training was in Leeds at the okay. university with the cross-country club. So that was a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd kind of do running in the mountains on my own when I came back. So a real so, range of things then that you, yeah. were, that you were open to. And what about your climate activism? Yeah, that was also quite like a accidental because when I was deciding what uni to go to, I at one point I thought I was going to go do psychology and then I decided that I wanted to like change the world in some way and so I decided to go and do business because I was like businesses control the world. Mm. That was my logic. <laughs> I was like they have the most influence. But I wanted to do something good, but I didn't at all think of doing environmental stuff and it was by accident when I was at the Leeds open day I saw there was a degree called environment and business and it was just like in a gap in the day that I had to like so I was like oh may as well just like go around the corner and listen to that talk or whatever and then I was like yeah I'll just do this so it kind of it was kind of like a an accident and I think it it snowballed once I started learning more about it and especially once I did like a few like work placements as part of the degree I think that made it a lot more interesting because it's more real life as opposed to just sitting in a lecture hall 
yeah absolutely I I guess making it more tangible and actually the impact that you can you can have in the world um and I'm curious like what specifically was your university research because I know you were quite academic weren't you as a as a younger younger lady (laughs) um I well I only did an undergrad degree so it wasn't um I didn't do any like published research or whatever but yeah, my main project for my dissertation at the end was, um, it was called World Views and the Ecological Crisis. But it was for like an undergrad dissertation, basically everyone was like, you're trying to do way too much in this. Because <laughs> I interviewed um, a load of like business and group leaders and it was quite, it kind of looked at the whole of the history of how we got to this place. And then looked at like the relationship of humans and nature um, it looked at how Western science systems had developed. It looked at stories and how important they are for how we view the world. And then it kind of tried to wrap that all together into this like one assignment. <laughs> so it was quite a lot, but I'm glad I did it. It was really interesting. It sounds like your passion and sort of a kind of broader vision for what you were wanting to achieve was kind of quite evident then. And it was a case of it having to be fitted into a little compartment that was a university dissertation (laughs) from what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think I find like um, the way, I mean, it's kind of the same in the way that all of research and like university and stuff is, is that you you're kind of forced to like narrow everything down Mm. but when you're trying to understand something like the climate crisis it doesn't actually make sense well you miss a lot when you do that whereas I find it more interesting to yeah to look at like how all the different issues link together um for example like equality and how the environment is isn't like two separate things but I guess it's just people aren't encouraged to think like that especially in universities and academic settings yeah that's really interesting that we have kind of like PPE so politics philosophy and economics but we kind of forget to add another e on the end for environment I think really yeah and even like PPE it's kind of uh I don't know yeah it's I it's even that's quite broad for Mm -hmm. like compared to a lot of things so I don't know. I was just guessing. I think it should be more holistic, I guess. Yeah. And did you feel like, because obviously you're a very academically proficient, like, did you feel any pressure to kind of go down a more desk orientated kind of route after university? A what orientated route, sorry? Desk orientated. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't think I had, I think I did feel that but not specifically from anyone, mm-hmm. but just more of, you know, it wasn't like my parents or anything pushed me to do anything in particular, but I think, yeah, there's definitely just, you, you I think from everything you experience from when you're born, you get this picture of like what's meant to happen at certain points. And yeah, I think because I'd gone down that kind of environmental route, so it's a bit it's a bit sciencey, not really sciencey, but all of those jobs and stuff that would be good ones um, are very desk oriented, especially because if you're doing stuff 
to do with the climate. It's quite uh, like, I mean, it's not abstract, but it can feel abstract because it's not like you can see someone in front of you. Like if you're a doctor, it's not like you can see their broken arm and then you do something to fix the broken arm mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you see it happen. You're like, you might be on a spreadsheet to do with carbon emissions and you never see anything happen in the air around you when you're like trying to make targets to reduce them or something Mm, so yeah I think just naturally there's so many desky jobs that are the obvious ones to start thinking about and was were you sort of aware at that point that you you felt there was kind of a problem with the way that we kind of live in the modern world (laughs) in terms of being cut off from nature and sort of disassociated from it? Um, yeah, I think um, because, yeah, when I was at university, I obviously went to Leeds, which is quite a big city. And every time I've lived in a city, I always, I feel, I always felt like I'd get into it and I'd have, you know, a routine and you like go to the gym and you do some like, fitness class and you go to the running club and you like run around and then you go do your work and then it's all you get into quite a good rhythm but then I'd come out of it and say I'd go home to the lakes or something and I'd go on a run up the hills and then it would suddenly feel like I'd like come out of this bubble and I was like it would all seem pointless if that makes sense mm-hmm. as in it I'd suddenly it would be suddenly like really obvious that there was something wrong but I wouldn't be able to put my finger on it but I'd be like I should be somewhere like this more often <laughs> I just should like this is where I'm meant to be well it's just not often you have that feeling where you're like absolutely certain this is like exactly where you should be so yeah I'd always get those moments and but just not at that moment kind of knowing what exactly it was and as you as you said like well your work, the work that you've done with climate activism is is very much about telling those tangible stories. And as you said, it, it can be very easy to sort of just distill that into spreadsheets that are mm. important, but aren't kind of going to be as provocative or um, sort of effective <laughs> as yeah. actually producing like the people behind them. And that's kind of, from what I'm hearing, sort of a reflection of how people are living kind of in in Leeds where your experience of it was it's that kind of hyper sort of high speed thing and 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 processing of information that actually you you just take a step out the door in somewhere like the Lake District and you feel that immediate kind of connection to the earth and then can see sort of the the actual effects of how we are relating to the landscape and maybe some of the negative impacts of that I guess as well and so like what was your because then you kind of started to marry up the kind of the the climate awareness with endurance challenges um and I'm quite interested in kind of like what was your understanding at that time of kind of of what the climate crisis was that kind of spurred you to think okay, I've done kind of like a more sort of theoretical based (laughs) kind of thing with this, but I want, I need to do something. Um, I think, I mean, I think it was partly just selfish reasons of like, I wanted to go on a big adventure. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I thought I need to do something. The best thing I can do is run across Europe. I thought I think I thought 
I don't want to just kind of keep doing lots of different jobs because I knew I knew I wanted to do some kind of really big adventure because I've been inspired by other people who've done that kind of thing but I didn't want to um I wanted it to have a purpose because I wanted it to be more like a project as opposed to you know like going traveling so so then yeah and then I just um came up with the idea basically but I committed to like leaving my job and roughly when I was going to start this adventure, like before I even knew what it was going to be, if that makes sense. Mm. I was just like, I'm going to move home, save money for a bit. And then, I don't know, August next year, I'm going to go off on this adventure. And then I pretty much did all of that. And then only a few months before I left, I was like, what is it going to be? I need to hone my ideas. And was that, was that sort of a gradual, yeah. sorry, was that kind of a gradual process of, of, like reading about other people doing things and then that kind of gradually building in your mind or was there a kind of day where you woke up and thought I need a change I need to go on an adventure <laughs> like how how did that come into your head because as you said like you'd had some experience fell running and and some mountain mm. running and an interest in the environment but why suddenly I, I'm going on an adventure and I'm quitting my job and this is what's yeah. going to happen. It definitely was a gradual thing because um, I think from quite a few years before I'd been reading books by like Alice Humphreys and Kate Rawls who she did, um, she's got a book called The Carbon Cycle so she cycled across all of the US states I think interviewing people about climate change Um and that, I must have been reading them from, I don't know, when I started university, maybe before, so quite a few years. Uh, and then when, as part of my university industrial placement, I went to New Zealand mm-hmm. um, and I did a month of travelling at, at the start of it. So, I, But I just took my rucksack and did loads of running on my own. Um, and I think that was so amazing that I was like, right, oh, one day I'm going to go on a really big running adventure when I've got more time. So there was that. I also tried to do a bit of a run across the Pyrenees. That actually went wrong, but that's like another story. <laughs> but I'd, I think in my head I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do more of this kind of thing. So that was brewing, I guess. And then I think, yeah, from people like Kate Rawls, um, she's also done a cycle all the way down South America on a bamboo bike, like interviewing people about biodiversity. And now she's writing a book about it. So... I think that's probably where I was like, oh, yeah, I can do something like that I really want to do, but I can also um, have a purpose and like, uh, well, I also, yeah, wanted to meet people and find out more about the places I went through. So so kind of make it a, a kind of discovery quest as well as a, yeah. a kind of an, a, just a start to finish journey, really. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. And what is the... So what's the story really behind the new story run? What, why that particular route? <laughs> and what did you hope to achieve with it? Um, I, so the route, I, I knew I wanted to start from home. So I started it from my parents' house. Um, and I think that was just important to me because I just liked the idea of running out the door mm. and setting off. Um, and then, yeah, I, I came up. I came up with this big Google map where I put different points on it, 
that I wanted to go to. And some of them were just countries I really wanted to visit. Um, and then other ones were I'd researched long distance trails. So I knew I could use that as part of the route because I wanted it not to be too much on road mm-hmm. um, or like as little as possible on road, really. And then I researched a few projects, but I didn't do a huge amount of research beforehand because I wanted it to be based on people's recommendations as I went along. So even the exact route, I didn't have an exact route. I said, say I had a meeting in, I don't know, Freiburg in Germany. They might then recommend three other places I should visit across Europe because quite often if it's an NGO or something, they're linked together with other countries. Um, and then I'd, when I was having rest days, I'd basically plan out the next two weeks of where I was going and then set off. That would be it. But I, yeah, I had this very rough route, but then it was quite organic in how it, like how it was fine tuned. That's amazing. Um, A very yeah. kind of human touch to it that you were, that they, people were acting as signposts rather than, yeah. you know, sort of Garmin Express or whatever you're using to plot yeah. your routes with. <laughs> and then in terms of um, like what I expected from it, I think at the very beginning, I was like, well, it's partly why I didn't plan out the whole route. I just thought I just need to set off and see what happens because it's, I mean, I didn't even know if I was going to enjoy it. Like maybe I was going to run for two weeks and then be like, I don't want to do it. So I kind of deliberately tried to not have any expectations at all and just get to the point where I could set off and then see what happened, Um, which was, it did work really well, actually. And then it, it ended up being, I'd say, uh more in terms of people getting into the idea of it and um other people getting passionate about it I'd say it was better than I ever expected actually so that was really cool that's really that's really amazing that just going going and seeing what happened with less pressure and expectation allowed it to unfold in the way that it did I imagine that the preparation was there a lot of preparation in terms of other things beforehand um yeah there was even though that's the approach I took I would say it's still I couldn't believe how much stuff I had to get sorted like just boring little stuff like emailing people like booking ferries all that kind of thing um and yeah I was training for it I'd say for about well maybe from like eight-ish months before or something because like I said I knew I wanted to do some kind of running adventure and I'd probably have a rucksack so as soon as I knew that I started doing longer runs and doing runs with a rucksack on and that kind of thing so um yeah there was a lot of preparation but spread out I'd say <laughs> yeah because it's quite a lot going from kind of fast fell racing really and, mm. and that kind of thing to then doing such a long uh, it's kind of like many 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 multi-day yeah. <laughs> challenge um yeah and especially with the backpack and things so I guess like we, we can kind of talk about sort of the endurance mentally and stuff but it is a it is a physical challenge as well yeah. um yeah. so I can imagine that that kind of from the offset can can put yeah. people off <laughs> and actually yeah. just kind of distilling your life down as well into into a backpack um mm-hmm. I'm quite interested in that and kind of 
the idea of living very simply in a way and also in terms of just allowing the journey itself kind of dictating where you're going how you're how you're moving what you're doing like what do you think people can learn from that um I think yeah it was it was really cool actually because I just had I think the rucksack was maybe 30 liters big maybe less 28 or something um but obviously often I was carrying five or six days of food in that so I needed to have as little as possible of kit basically um and yeah I pretty much had in terms of clothes I just had uh like pretty much shorts and t-shirt leggings long sleeve top and a jumper and jacket like waterproofs um and that was I was away for just over a year and there was the lockdown in that as well and I basically Mm -hmm. just wore you know leggings the same leggings and same t-shirt the whole time (laughs) um and it was it was funny because I never like ever missed all the other stuff I had at home um which is interesting from the perspective now because I've been back for quite a while and um like I said when I was younger I wanted to be a fashion designer so like I do actually really love clothes (laughs) like probably a bit too much in that yeah I always buy stuff but um it's not like I'm not someone who likes to express themselves through clothes like I do Mm. but it was interesting to just have this tiny rucksack and just be completely fine with it and not really miss anything it must have Um, felt like a literal weight lifted really not just in terms of light backpacking but just so many decisions stripped away as well like you're just going to put your leggings on and think about what you're going to eat and where you're going to go and that's yeah yeah that's sort of it I think um sorry one other thing on that is like a a lot of people um sometimes uh say something like oh I couldn't do I couldn't run like every day like that carrying rucksack but when when you've got if you've only got that to do, like your body recovers so much better. And, you know, once you put your tent up in the evening, you have dinner, maybe do a bit of stretching or whatever, but you pretty much are just going to go to sleep. And it might only be, I don't know, eight o'clock or seven o'clock. And you get so much sleep and the rest of the time you're not doing much. Even though there was tons of admin to do because of the climate side of it, there was way more than I had anticipated but when I was actually in the bits where I was running I had to save phone battery so much that it's not like you could sit on your phone in the evening you just basically go to sleep so Hmm. get like 12 hours sleep every night it's amazing and were you doing that's can I come next (laughs) sounds brilliant (laughs) and were you doing all of your all of your kind of admin and writing that you're doing was that all on your phone yeah so all the articles I wrote was all on my phone um all of the website management everything I think it's interesting looking back on it because when I um came up with the idea and started it I was really like passionate about the idea of trying to just do it and go um in some way to show that you can just go and do big stuff without you know often people who you might see films at 
mountain festivals and they've done huge adventures they might have like a whole support team and a big Mm -hmm. corporate sponsorship and stuff whereas I felt it was important to just like get on with it and do it all myself which I guess I still kind of agree you don't need that but in hindsight um it just would have been so good to have someone else do all the website because (laughs) I think I should have just not tried to do it all on my own because I think that probably contributed to ending up with a bit of fatigue problems afterwards do do you think because you 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 know the aim was you were doing it self-supported was that always important to you from the outset yeah I think um I, I, I like the idea of not having a support I don't think I'd want to do one where you know you have a van following you around or something just because I feel like it like that simplicity that you're talking about Mm. it's just so nice to um be able to just bobble along with your rucksack be like oh yeah I think I'm just going to camp here like you don't need to let anyone know and um yeah I think that's one of the main appeals of doing that kind of thing so I guess that just suited me better but in terms of the research and emailing and all that kind of thing I think if someone had been helping with that it would have taken a big it would have meant on the rest days I could rest more which was actually a bit of a struggle like trying to make sure that on rest days I had time to actually rest as opposed to sitting on my phone for 12 hours like writing three blogs in one go and interviewing somebody and emailing the next week's worth of people and all that kind of thing it really so. is incredible how many how many balls you're already balancing, I think, yeah. or hat, hats you were wearing. I don't I'm not sure yeah. what kind of cross pollinators really some expressions that. it would be that much when I came up with the idea. <laughs> but it was quite a lot. But you managed it and, and you did get through and um and doing it self-supported, but obviously the point of it was kind of connecting with people as as you went and you um you stayed with people along the way am I correct as well as as well as camping and I was wondering kind of what you learned from that experience and the people that you connected with yeah I'd say that was the such like I would say maybe my favorite part of the trip was the people I stayed with because I'd um I'd anticipated when I had rest days trying to find people to stay with mm-hmm. who were maybe connected to the projects that I was interviewing and stuff like that because um, I was doing it on quite a small budget so it wasn't like I'd be able to afford to pay for hotels and stuff. Um, but then what I hadn't really thought about is just how many people I'd end up staying with just like accidentally. Um, yeah, so I ended up staying with something like because I did keep a spreadsheet of like where I slept each night. I should have checked this beforehand, but I think there was at least like 25 or 30 or something complete random unplanned times when I just stayed with people, (laughs) you know, like they might've asked where I was going to camp or something because it was getting dark. And then I was like, I'm just going to find somewhere to camp. And they'd be like, well, it's really cold. We've got a spare room. Um, and all of those experiences were like super, super nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's something that, especially through the news and stuff, it it kind of scares people, that idea of just like going into a stranger's home and just trusting them. But the reality is that most people are really friendly and open and 
aren't gonna hurt you so uh Mm. yeah it was it was definitely like a humbling experience and it's I guess it I think it's made me nicer as well because I just feel like you know when you feel like everyone's been so nice to you you just want to help other people out whenever you can as well so (laughs) not I was like a nasty person but (laughs) It teaches you to be open because you're like, wow, this person's literally just taken me in completely without asking. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess kind of sharing space with others as well and learning to coexist with others in that way who you don't necessarily know is, it's quite a privilege really. We don't do that a lot in, in society. We're all in our kind of like little bubbles of our homes and and don't really cross paths in that quite intimate way with people. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's so unique in that um, the everyone I stayed with, which was planned, you're obviously already connected through some reason. Mm. And anything in normal life as well, anyone you meet, unless you literally bump into someone on the street, um, you pretty much always meet them through something like maybe you go to the same cafe maybe you go to the same club maybe you're interested in the same work or something but I guess this was the one thing where it could have been anybody at all and they might not have anything in common with you but somehow you're just staying in their house for the evening and so yeah it was quite special I'd say I really love that idea that actually the common thing that you have is kindness like and that that's just such a lovely unifying principle isn't it really yeah. and trust as well I guess because yeah. they will I would have to trust them and they would also have to trust me that I'm not gonna you know rob them in the night or set the house on fire or something <laughs> I don't know <laughs> drop your leggings all over the place (laughs) and I'm interested also um I've read I recently read um Jenny Tuff's book uh Solo and she talks quite a lot in that about the kind of vulnerable woman narrative that goes on when when you're traveling on your own in that manner and I'm I'm wondering if you encountered that and whether that was frustrating when and if you did. Um, I, I think it, people maybe wanted to help me more because I was a woman and on my own. So in terms of um, that trust that they, they had to trust you to let you in your house, I guess a lot of them might have thought, Oh, like, if I was a big burly guy, maybe they would have been more worried. Mm. I don't know. Especially if maybe they were, a, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think anyone really told me I shouldn't be on my own. Although, yeah, maybe a few comments, but it wasn't really strong. I got some comments saying I should um, go home because I was I should be like with my family. Like um, from older people who were, I guess, just thought it was way more important to be with my family and just, I shouldn't be gallivanting off around <laughs> the world. Um, which is, you know, an interesting fair point, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's but, yeah, the interesting I think, um, thing. The woman well. thing is, I think it's often quite a subconscious thing that people have. Mm. So even if it's not explicitly said, I think it can be a subconscious thing. Because, yeah, I think 
especially with talking about like connecting to strangers I think people often they want they do want to listen to the good stuff but they'll always want to ask you like oh did you have any bad experiences and like even if I did share a story or something they might it might feel like they're hanging on to that more because it it's like oh yeah you shouldn't it can be dangerous to go traveling on your own it's it's such a it's almost like people want to hear that story again because because the idea that you can just trust everybody doesn't sit right because it's not what we hear all the time in the news mm, it's I mean, sort of looking for that validation through something and just yeah. hanging on to I that, don't know if that made any sense actually but no absolutely absolutely yeah. absolutely <laughs> what I mean is it can be there even if it if they even if they're not conscious of being there and they don't say anything there can be this well there is often like a an assumption mm. and yeah. I think that's something that we all all carry even as women kind of the narratives that we tell ourselves and also the way that we behave you know in, in in yeah. the street when we go out for a run <laughs> every day really so I think that yeah. we have unconscious bias towards ourselves but not because of how we behave but actually how society the narratives that society has as a whole and that doesn't necessarily reflect on the individual people who are showing you kindness <laughs> and yeah. um, I think um, as well like that's perfectly justified because stuff does happen mm. but it could happen you know outside your own front door or inside your own home unfortunately um and yeah I think uh, I've been going for maybe nine months or something and had all these amazing experiences and there was one bad thing that happened which I was really like shaken up afterwards um but I won't go into like all the details but it really annoyed me because for the next like three weeks after that I was just felt like really scared of mm -hmm. everyone and I was just really angry because I was like I know logically that from all these amazing experiences I've had that people are like good like there's only you know something could happen to you at any point but you can't focus on that because the majority of people are really open and kind and good and I know that logically but because of this experience you know it, it can like completely knock that because it's not logical so I think sometimes that fear like it's justified because a lot of women unfortunately have had traumatic experiences um but as soon as you ha I think as soon as you have fear like you can't have logic if that makes sense because it's just like there and it does feel like suddenly everyone seems like a threat even though you know that they're not a threat so yeah that was interesting actually obviously not great but yeah. <laughs> it was interesting to like see that effect on myself and then think oh yeah like you can't really reason with someone who feels that because um you're not in a state to really reason them you just have to kind of I only I only got through it basically by just still trying to talk to people all the time and then eventually I was fine <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I think it is a really complicated issue and as you say once something kind of disproves the sort of positive mindset that you have about it you can very quickly spiral into that into that fear which has been justified um, and then that kind of anger of oh I shouldn't be feeling this and yeah. and actually you know 
pushing forwards as you did, but also kind of giving yourself the space to have those feelings. Um, it, it sounds like you had a really mature response to something that was really difficult. <laughs> um, and- I kind of was like, well, uh, you know, because life was so simple, I was like, just get up, run, go back to sleep, have some food <laughs> at some point. Like, I was like, well, I better just keep doing that. <laughs> Just so, go back yeah. to the rotor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when did, because uh, you were obviously doing this by yourself, but there was a kind of crossing of paths that happened when the, the yeah. news story cycle became involved in the news story run. And I was wondering if you could um, talk about when that happened, how it happened, and what it was then like kind of sharing bits of your journey. Yeah, so um, me and Mike, so it was Mike Elm who did the news story ride. So we were already a couple, like, together before I started the run. Mm -hmm. Um, But we got together not that long before I was going, I think. And he was also going off travelling in China. Um, He got the train from Edinburgh to Beijing, all across, like, Russia and stuff. Um, But, yeah, we didn't really know what we were going to do because I was going off on this adventure and he was going off travelling. And then I think it was, like, four and a half months we hadn't seen each other or something. And he was trying to figure out what to do next. And he kind of asked me if he could like kind of join, but on the bike. And I was like, yeah, you can, but you have to make it like your own thing. But we wanted it to be kind of two separate adventures, but partnered as well. So the same aims. And he was on the bike cycling around and then we'd kind of meet up on our rest days most of the time. So yeah, it was good because we had our own thing, I guess. But also, uh, yeah, it was good to have someone to like share ideas with um, and, well, I guess share the experience with, but without it being like changing it too much, if that makes sense. And I guess you could contact, you could come into contact with more people as well that way. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think it was cool because obviously he could go further on the bike. So some he went to Bosnia, for example, and visited a few projects there. And but I couldn't get there because you can't do that many diversions. Otherwise, <laughs> you never get anywhere when you're running. So, yeah, you'd still be running if you were doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Still, still going. And then you both had to. The pandemic happened, and you both mm. had to sort of hit pause in Kosovo, was it? Yes. So how did that? How did that impact you? And the kind of message of your journey and, and how it affected you both. And I mean, did you learn from it? <laughs> Can you talk me through that? Yeah, I I think, um, to be honest, I was getting really tired <laughs> by that point. I think I'd been running for seven months. Um, and just, let's say, the, the few weeks before the lockdown happened, I was just feeling really exhausted. So actually when they announced the lockdown, I was almost like, phew, I need to just stop for a bit. But obviously no one thought how long it was going to be. We thought, we, we were like, oh yeah, blow over in like three weeks or something. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll just like have a, a few weeks of break and then we'll carry on again. It'll all be fine. Um, but yeah, it was quite good in that it allowed us both to kind of catch up with writing about the different stories that we hadn't written about yet. Um, And we did quite a few like Zoom meetings with people to get more. And I'd say that 
I guess it allowed like digestion time, if that makes sense, mm. of everything we'd learned so far. Um, yeah, and I think my thinking about it did change during that time, just I think because the amount of time I had to think about it in terms of, like we said at the beginning, linking together a lot of other bigger issues. So while I think while we were in lockdown, there was the big Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. You know, there was the time when everyone just became way more aware of that. Um, and then I think that and a few other things, uh, I started to think about how it related to equality and, yeah, just trying to be more holistic as opposed to just looking for environmental projects. Mm. So, yeah, it definitely, um, it was good to have that, like, reflection time, I guess. So do you think there was a kind of wider context to your sort of, you restarted the journey but there was a kind of global reset and restart from from that from that period where we're all kept inside. Do you think there was a sort of synergy between those things? Uh, yeah, uh, I think I'm trying to remember what it was like, like restarting again. <laughs> I think yeah, there was. I think there was quite a big push of people realizing that things can change really quickly if obviously in that situation it's not good because mm. everything had to shut down and that's not good a pandemic's not good change but I think it was interesting to see like how quickly governments can make decisions mm. in a crisis situation when in you know we're in, we're in an like an ecological crisis right now but it's not dealt with as if it's a crisis it's as if it's like a kind of tomorrow's problem type situation but governments and businesses and everything do have the power to just change things overnight if they Mm. had to so that was quite interesting to see I'd say yeah and do you think that sort of changed some of your thinking around the climate crisis as well then in terms Um, of what what could be done I'm not sure if it did because I think i I think I'm a, sometimes a bit of a realist in that I'm like, yeah, this is what needs to happen. Boom, 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 boom. And I want it all to happen immediately. Mm. Um, so I think I already kind of thought like that. Um, and I guess now it's difficult because we've kind of gone back to like normal life. Mm. Uh, and yeah there was quite a lot of momentum in terms of like the Fridays for Futures movement and stuff before the pandemic and I don't know if uh like everything happening online for a while sometimes somehow feels like it slowed that momentum but then momentum always speeds up and slows down it's never like a constant (laughs) yeah I'm not sure sorry that's a bit of a unsure answer I don't know if it changed my thinking completely or not no, um, but it might uh, it, it leads quite nicely actually into into thinking about because we we talk we've talked about like the kindness that you experienced on quite a personal level, people taking you into their homes. But obviously, like the main um, the main thinking behind the project was sort of also connecting with um, sustainability initiatives and groups and things along the way. So I was wondering if you wanted to kind of highlight any of the positive stories that you that you yeah. found. <laughs> um. Well, seeing as we just mentioned Fridays for Futures, that was really mm. cool because um, there was a big march that they planned. I think it was the 
maybe the global march which was in september so i think maybe just a month into my run um and i was running through this town and had agreed to meet two of the organizers of the march in that town on that day so they were kind of involved with leading the march and then they we went for breakfast the next day or maybe hung out later i'm not sure um but it was just really cool to see their enthusiasm and also obviously they all were there because they care about the world <laughs> but what they were really like buzzing about was like the people they'd met through Fridays for Futures they were getting videos from like other big cities in like I think I think I was in Germany but they were getting messages from activists that they'd met in Austria and Germany and Switzerland and it was that like connection of being part of a group that they were really excited about so that was quite interesting to see and I think that's um that was like a really positive thing because they were actually having fun with it mm. um which I think is really important because it can be such like a heavy topic to be involved in and people who are working in it all the time like every day you're dealing with this huge issue and it can be quite like a weight on you I think if you if you forget to just you kind of always have to not take it too seriously, but then it is like ridiculously serious. Mm. So <laughs> it's hard to get that balance. So it was really cool to just see them like basically making friends through it and having fun. So I think that's one of the things I love about marches and protests is even though they're obviously like a protest, it doesn't sound like a fun thing, but it can be like a really fun thing because you're all out together. You're on, the, you're like singing you're walking together um so that was I'd say one of the most positive ones I saw that's really Um, interesting and ultimately as you say people coming together and having creative reactions to things that's what is going to ultimately lead to change um and and that is is fun and it, it should be because compassion and connection is what we've been what we've been lacking and I'm kind of interested in that idea do you think from that sort of kind of experience like do you think there is a connection between how we treat each other and how we treat the world yeah definitely actually I think and also how we treat ourselves I think I'm, I'm always really interested in the psychology of it like um you, I mean, this maybe is a bit of a tangent, but if you know, you know, this someone who treats people badly, mm. if you treat the way you treat other people, you also, that's directed at yourself, even if you're not aware of it. Um, and I think the way you treat the world is also the same. It's just how you react to everything. So I think it is important to like, have spaces where you like foster that openness but also like the fun part of it because without that it's just not sustainable to do those things yeah I don't know if that makes sense no absolutely yeah and on this so we've talked about a lot of the kind of the the positives which has been really nice obviously this was still an endurance challenge with challenge being the operative word there like what yeah. was the most cha- or one of the most challenging things that you encountered on the way um 
I think the most challenging thing uh, was kind of afterwards, actually, mm. because I came, I came back. We came back in October 2020, um, thinking that we'd like sit out the lockdowns and stuff, and then go back. Because originally I was uh, intending to try and run to Mongolia, but. Um, got to Bulgaria but left basically thinking I'm just leaving this for now I'm going to come back kind of thing Um, and then basically had this really bad burnout type thing um, and had to stop running had to stop working almost like chronic fatigue but it wasn't Mm -hmm. really a diagnosed thing my mental health was really bad Um, yeah basically just had to stop everything and then it's pretty much taken I'd say like two years to recover from it. Um, And then, yeah, as part of that, I ended up deciding not to go back just because Mm. I just felt like I'd done enough of that adventure (laughs) and that I didn't have to try and think about something that big. Uh, So, yeah, I'd say like the recovery from it was the most challenging thing because I think now that I've had that experience talking to lots of other people, it's quite common um but it was not something I think that a lot of people are aware of um yeah so I think that part of that was the climate stuff as well was um that just feeling like it was way too much like even though I tried to do all of this stuff you never you never see whether that's made a difference or not so it's very easy to end up thinking like whatever I do is not gonna be enough um, that's quite negative, isn't it? But yeah, I think dealing with that was the most difficult thing, especially because on a big event like that, you're on quite a high for so long, mm. and then and then when I had to give everything up and not even run for ages, I was like, did I even do that? Like, it doesn't feel like that was me because it seemed so far away. If that makes sense. Thank you so much for sharing that, Rosie. Because I think like that is something that isn't talked about and actually I mean it is common (laughs) and in your your bucket it can only hold so much and although you stepped out the door without expectations along the way you were taking on so much emotional pressure (laughs) like Mm. and and responsibility towards the people that you're connecting with towards the message that you're wanting to spread and then all of the communication that you're doing on your rest days, as well as doing this in- incredible feat of endurance um, that still stands as that, <laughs> what you did. Um, and then to to come back and to have to pause it and restart and then, and then to be faced with, oh, maybe my body can't do this at the moment because the bu- bucket is overflowing and having to grapple with your identity, I imagine, sort of having yeah. been tied to that it's really tough and I imagine yes absolutely you know those mountains that we have to go across and I've discussed this with um Alex Stanforth in in another interview but like they're the big ones (laughs) um and and it's really brave of you to also speak about it because I think that it can can help others um to to actually grapple with that and that you know the work that you're doing and talking about it is is really important even though it might have felt or does feel maybe a bit still like oh you know I'm not doing enough or I'm not enough and that kind of thing yeah thanks yeah thanks for that I think um 
it's a I feel like I don't I put way less pressure on myself now or I never really thought I did put that much pressure on myself but um it still feels weird to like talk about the run because I haven't really because I've basically not done that much running for ages mm. I mean I'm getting back into it now but I've lost so much fitness as well um but I think yeah it was from going doing something where I was so focused and then basically have to having to just like force myself to completely relax it's quite a, like it's like the complete opposite ends of the spectrum but I guess it's also something I learned a lot from and yeah I think it is important for to try and speak about it because um, I mean, it can happen even when it's nothing to do with endurance mm. in terms of exercise. Like a lot of people experience these like phases of burnout. Um, but I think often people don't realise how common it is because probably because when you're in that state, you don't really go around telling everyone about it. Do you? You don't go around being like, yeah. I've had to stop all of my life. <laughs> so no one ever hears about it. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I suffer from an autoimmune condition. So it just sounds like you do feel like oh, I'm a bit of a broken record saying I'm tired today. Like, see, the people don't quite understand what that you're saying that you're tired, like what that feels like. And, um, yeah. and you don't want to always be the person who's saying, no, I don't feel great. Or like, no, I can't do that. I don't have the energy today. Or like, yeah, I had the energy yesterday, but that means I don't have any energy today. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and you don't want to be that person um and that's a real that's a real struggle I think and um and things like reds and overtraining syndrome are really common with women and I think a lot of people find it difficult because saying oh I didn't eat enough or something like it almost feels like you've been a bad person or something and it can it can happen because of psychological connections or it can happen completely by accident. And they, and um, I think normalizing those things, it just makes everyone feel a lot less alone and a lot more like yeah. they can still have a voice, even if they're not doing big things kind of thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think think- that it's not going to be forever as well, uh, because I think it can be, well I found it one of those things where I was like okay I know I'm feeling rubbish but how long will it be for like I just wanted to know like I wanted someone to be like right you're gonna be fine in six months or you're gonna be fine in two months but you can't you don't know that till you've come through it and it can just feel like it could go on forever um but yeah I guess me speaking about it more with people was good because then I found out other people's stories um which has always been really good because then, uh, for example, there was one person I spoke to who had loads of chronic fatigue type issues about 15 years ago. And they're like a really good endurance athlete. And they basically were like, yeah, now I'm running stronger than I've ever done before. Just, but again, there was like quite a big psychological element and they had to deal with that to then get to that point. But when you see what they've achieved now, you would never think that. Yeah, and all kudos to you to for going through this journey. And yeah, as someone who struggles with that, like you will be fine. Like things might have to change in different ways, but you change, <laughs> and you've already proved yeah. how adaptable you are to stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. but thank you for for talking about it. And actually, I, I I wanted to think a little bit about if you think that kind of adventure in the outdoors 
can be used in general as a positive vehicle to combat the climate crisis and might be interesting to think whether your thoughts might have changed on that actually as well but um... <laughs> well, I think definitely it can it's like the um I think it doesn't have to be like a long journey but anything that's like combines something you really enjoy with um something that's yeah having a positive impact I think that's really important because like I said, it's such a serious issue that can be really heavy. So if there's any way of making it more fun, then definitely go for it. So I think, yeah, that's the main thing is just like keeping hold of the enjoyment part of it. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, there's more and more films and stuff like that. Things like Kendall Mountain Festival mm. that are like fun, but they also have a environmental message. And I think that's really good because... Um, it's just yeah like like you said before like using creativity in an area where sometimes it can be quite like stats and science heavy Mm. and kind of bringing that alive for people is really important so I think adventures can help do that because you know there's more it's it's more real if that makes sense do you think there's um because obviously even still with Kendall Mountain I mean they are focusing quite a lot more on kind of doorstep adventures but there is still obviously you know the kind of glorification of travel and (laughs) and adventure which is a bit problematic um and I know you know Damien Hall and people talk so much about kind of being that being a hypocrite and actually sort of you can't get everything absolutely right but do you think we can do more to kind of change the stories and actually the reception of the stories as well around kind of what adventure is and what doing hard things is and and things so it's not just all about I'm going to fly to the other side of the world and do and climb this mountain and aren't I great (laughs) yeah 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 I think um I think there's a lot that can be done in that area and it's all like really positive stuff um which is nice um and I think yeah things like well I only really know Kendall Mountain Festival because I've been there like the last few years I've Mm. gone but each year they've got better at like getting a really good mixture of films I think and a lot of people who went this year said the same thing in that they had I think yeah people are really realizing that films and storytelling can uh like help things move forward so things like diversity showing different stories and just like completely broadening out the the spectrum of what counts as an adventure that Mm. should be talked about um it it could literally be like it could just be about some of the local pond or something you know you get films of people doing like a dance performance over a river from Mm. a log um and then you still get some of the big like stories of people I don't know, doing like the seven biggest summits of the world or whatever. But I think they are a lot more, there's a lot more uh, interesting diversity in the films that are shown now. So it can definitely be like a vehicle for change, I think. And I guess just, you know, us having this conversation about saying, yeah, that story about someone, you know, swimming in their local pond or doing a regeneration project so that other people can join in that and saying that is worth listening to is then signposting to other people to kind of 
join in and celebrate that conversation. Yeah. And that's also absolutely not to undermine people who do go and, you know, climb seven mountains, or whatever, because yes, that is really impressive. But yeah. I think a lot of people, particularly, I guess, kind of mothers and things like you might feel like adventures off the cards for me kind of thing. Well, actually, yeah. there are so many things that are incredible. And like about kind of like what you did, you know you you traveled a long way but it was more a focus on the storytelling and the connection than on wherever the destination was going to be or or the route that you took <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah, I'm definitely. so what in terms of so at the moment you are are you working as an outdoor leader is that your role because I know that you organize some sort of like skills um events and things yeah um I I did my mountain leader assessment Mm -hmm. last early last summer so yeah for the last year it's kind of a summer seasonal thing so it's off I'm not doing anything in the next couple of months but um I'm doing some yeah mountain leader work in the Lake District um which is where I'm based at the moment so yeah that's been really good um yeah, there's some stuff with Girls on Hills who are actually yeah. a Scottish company, but yeah, doing some navigation training, that kind of thing. And I'm working in a cafe as well. So it's a good mixture. And I'm thinking of uh, going back into working in the sustainability sector, but on like a freelance basis, but that's yet to happen. <laughs> that all yeah. sounds amazing. And and obviously, you know, you've been recovering as well. So is that kind of your your next steps in terms of kind of your your climate advocacy work what what do you see in terms of how you continue with that um I yeah I'm not completely sure at the moment Mm. what I'm going to do next yeah I like I said I'm hoping in the next few months to start doing more freelance work kind of yeah because before I was working as a climate consultant for a bit Mm -hmm. um so yeah, doing some of that, but I don't think I'd want to do that full time again because I want to kind of that and the mountain leader stuff. I think would be quite a good combination, and I think they balance each other out quite well. So um, yeah, I'm going for variety. I think, but I've got no no big adventures in the pipeline um, because yeah, I'm still getting my fitness back, and yeah. hopefully, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna focus on the the joy of running for a bit <laughs> yeah. how great because that's what the podcast is called yeah. so. <laughs> no, like intense goals just some fun running in the hills so yeah you can find your flow again. I mean, you know, the the challenge that you did, it was it was running. So I'm really glad to hear that actually you're getting the opportunity to just return to the the joy that you find in movement mm. that enabled you to go and do a running challenge. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um and I'm I'm absolutely convinced that you'll be a brilliant mountain guide as well. And the stories that you can share with people doing that is is advocacy work in itself and really important because that's where you can have really profound change and giving people the skills to kind of look after themselves and feel capable and be able to move through nature for themselves is yeah. so cool I think <laughs> yeah yeah so that sounds really yeah. exciting thank you I have a few just a few quick fire questions so yes. first one is favorite doorstep adventure that I've done 
or that oh. you well, it could be either actually it could be one that you've done or one that you so your kind of favorite adventure from the front door or it could be one that you want to do <laughs> um if I'm allowed to choose one from my parents front door there's just a really good running loop um yeah you go straight out past the lake up a load of hills back down the gill and yeah uh, sometimes bivy around the other side of the lake where there's this little mm. tiny bit of land that sticks out into the lake. So you're, you kind of wake up surrounded by the lake, which is really cool. So I'd say, yeah, like maybe a, a run and overnight bivy in that part of the Lake District, which is the North Lakes, probably my favourite. Oh, that's I love a good like, overnight camp and then you're back, you know, for breakfast the next morning. That sounds so lovely. Um, possibly not waking up with some snow on your face if you did it at the uh, moment. As I'm, well. not, I'm not going to be doing that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. um, second one, most treasured sustainable alternative to new kit? Ooh. Um, or best second-hand most find? treasured? Um, yeah, I get a lot of stuff off like Outdoor Gear Exchange or... Um, stuff like that actually my tent the tent that I used for the whole run and all my other adventures um, I got from Outdoor Gear Exchange um, like a little one-man tent Terra Nova one you often see like little one-man tents for second-hand going second-hand because people buy them for like the almond stuff and then they mm. realize they're never going to use them again um, so I think stuff like that I'll always I would always buy second-hand that's a brilliant tip, actually. Yeah. I think after after things are with compulsory kit lists, where actually people yeah. never do it again because they're not really into camping, aside from having to carry it yeah. for a long race, it's, yeah. it's really good. Um, one tip or a piece of advice that you could give to people that they could do kind of every day, um, to be live more sustainably. To live more sustainably, uh every day oh god um i would say things yeah i would say just um not buying as much stuff Mm. that's new just every time you need something you know maybe the kettle breaks and you're gonna get a new kettle just go on facebook marketplace and get a secondhand kettle yeah or yeah I don't know is that a good one I'm not sure I think that is a good one or I think that sort of ties in with the idea of you know before you purchase anything that sort of do I need it and that difference between need and want as well Mm. as you say like that's the big question isn't it and people just don't stop and you we've just had all the Black Friday things where it's like the people don't need this (laughs) if I was allowed to put another one in there it would be to just go outside and look at the sky and breathe for five minutes <laughs> I think that's a, good, a really good one actually people yeah. don't do that more or don't feel that they have the time to do that as well mm. um I, there's been a lovely full moon the past few nights yeah. as well and I've just because I can't really kind of go really outside moment but just looking through my window and thinking oh really light polluted in rugby but I can still see the stars and that moon is beautiful and it just does make you feel that connection to the world where you think wow I want other people to still be able to see this like in years and years doesn't that I think (laughs) 
Um, and finally, Rosie, the big question, which is what does joy mean to you? Oh, what does joy mean to me? Um, I think joy is like everything because, and you can you can find it in like the tiniest things. So like you can find it in a cup of tea, you can find it in like, I don't know, the most, like seeing a little ladybird land on the windowsill or something. So I think joy is, joy is like, um, is what keeps everyone going basically. Um, so I think, yeah, it's important to uh, just kind of seek it out and also not be too much of an adult. Um, as, well, no, that's that's kind of like patronising towards the term being an adult, but to kind of <laughs> keep that playfulness, I think that's just makes everything, especially with environmental issues or things that are happening in the world, you, that's still really important. That is such an important message and, and thank you so much for, for ending our conversation with that because I think that being playful is something that everybody can can learn from what, whatever age and even children, I think, are having a lot of their their play <laughs> kind of taken away in a way yeah. um, by by many things, but sort of the weight of weight of the world around us is, is a lot mm-hmm. and we do need to we do need to keep playing I think so yes thank you yeah, for that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thank you for this wonderful conversation and I think we've kind of taken it in directions that I didn't expect much like much like your journey and route planning actually <laughs> um yeah. and you are I mean I just want to say personally as well Rosie like I know that you've been you've just talked very honestly about sort of a few years of not feeling like doing enough being enough and you are just incredible and you are enough you You are doing so much and you are such a wonderful voice and advocate and 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 have such sincerity with everything that you that you say and do and I'm so excited for the next chapter of your stories (laughs) as they emerge and in whatever way that happens so so thank you for everything you do and thank you for this for sharing this time and wonderful conversation with me oh well thanks for having me on the podcast yeah it's been really really good so yeah thanks thanks i'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode i would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support perseverance and joy further if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.